0: So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered them out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, sometimes called a technicolor robe or an ornate robe, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judas said to his brothers, "What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold in Egypt to Potiphar, Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's Egypt's. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you would convict us with this text this morning, as you open up our lives to some of the realities of jealousy, hatred, resentment, and betrayal that find themselves in our hearts and that you would come in and minister it to us by the gospel, repentance and forgiveness of sins so that we can be transformed and pray and see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In your precious son's name, amen. So Joseph is perhaps... The most well-known story in the Old Testament, perhaps only uh, along with Jonah being swallowed by the giant fish, but it is so well known to us. Uh, and of course, we've heard of his technicolor dream coat, as Disney uh, chose to call it. Um, it probably wasn't technicolor; it's probably more uh, likely to be translated as ornate or long-sleeved. But we're introduced to Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, and one of the hallmarks of Joseph is that he is loved more by his father than all of his brothers. Joseph ends up having a total of 11 brothers. There's these 12 brothers, uh, the children of Jacob. And the reason Joseph is the most loved, we're told in the text that he's the son of his old age, but we read elsewhere that he is also the son by his favourite wife, Rachel. Jacob actually had uh, four wives or two wives and, and their maidservants by whom he had children. Uh, And gentlemen, before any of you get ideas, one of the subtexts in the Old Testament is that having children by more than one woman, having multiple wives, always ends up badly. Just just putting that out there. But Joseph is very clearly favoured by his father. He gives him this ornate robe. Now, that's more than just about you get better clothes than your brothers or sisters. A robe in the Old Testament is a signifier of status, prestige, honour, power, all of these things, to the point that it probably, in his brother's minds, began to call into question, okay, just what is gonna happen to our inheritance and who exactly is going to lead the family when dad passes on, because Joseph is not the oldest. That should be the right of the oldest. And so they're probably calling all of these things Into question. And we're told that because of this, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And then the situation ratchets up a notch as he has some dreams and he sees himself and his brothers out in the field gathering sheaves of wheat. uh, And his sheath of wheat stands up tall and his brothers bow down to him. And we're told that he goes to them and tells them a dream and they hated him even more. And when he finished telling him the dream, it says, Once again, they hated him even more. So we have this threefold repetition of their hatred towards him. He goes on and he has another dream. Uh, this time, the 11 stars and the sun and the moon bow down to him. He tells his brothers again. His daddy is about it. He says, come on, are even your mother and I gonna bow down to you? But he, we're told he kept that in his mind. And then we're told that his brothers were jealous of him. And so there's this growing resentment in them towards him. On one occasion, they were out in the fields and by fields, don't think backyard, think dozens if not hundreds of square kilometres that is capable of sustaining large flocks and herds and Jacob wants to check up on them and they've probably been gone for quite some time. So he sends Joseph to look for them. Uh, He goes out to where they were last seen um, and they're not there, but he meets a man who tells them they've gone towards Doshan uh, and as he heads towards Doshan, that's where we picked up uh, the reading this morning. Now, As we read the section that we read, I think it's very easy for us to actually read this text wrongly. We we know this is the story of Joseph, so we're focusing on Joseph. And one way we could look at this text is we could look at it and we could say, well, Joseph gets betrayed by his brothers. I get betrayed. And so that's what I'm supposed to focus on in this text. But actually, if you read the text carefully, I don't believe that's what Moses wants us to focus on at all, and he has why. When you start reading the passage, the focus is entirely on Joseph, the dreams that he has, the things that he says, how his father treats him, and then going out into the field. He's very active and he's doing lots of things. But once we get to the section that we read, the focus shifts entirely until, yes, these things are happening to Joseph, but he's kind of not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is very, very much on the brothers and what they are doing. It's not even so much on Joseph as the recipient of their actions, although of course he is, but the focus is on the brothers as a whole and two brothers in particular and the actions that they are taking. And so as we approach this text, we need to approach it saying, okay, the focus here is on the brothers. So the question is not how am I like Joseph, but how might I be like these brothers? And when we look at these brothers, their actions are absolutely horrendous. First they plan on murdering him, then they get talked out of it. They have to be talked out of murdering their brother. That's how vile this is. Then they shove him in a pit And sell him off into slavery. Their own brother. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did they get there? This is not a spur of the moment thing. They didn't just have an argument and in the heat of the moment push him in a pit. No, they see him coming from a distance on foot. He's not traveling 120 kilometers an hour that he's there in three minutes. They have time to think and to strategize and to plan and to change their plans. They see him coming from a distance and they set their hearts to betray him. And the text tells us how they get there. They got there because they hated him because he was favoured by their father and they hated him more because of his dreams and they hated him more because of his dreams and they were jealous because of his dreams. I'm going to reference this text a few times this morning or the saying of Jesus Jesus said anyone who hates his brother or his sister has already committed murder in his heart. This text is just the outworking of that truth that Jesus brought to us. This is the outworking of it. The hatred grew and grew and grew. We see a progression over time. This is not a spur of the moment thing. This is what happens inevitably. You can't stop this from happening. It will happen to you, maybe not to these exact circumstances, but certainly in your heart. This is the inevitable outcome of hatred and jealousy if it takes root in your heart and it is allowed to grow and grow. It will end up at least in your heart in this way. What we see in this text is Joseph is put above his brothers. He's in the position of power and prestige and honour, and some of that is what causes the jealousy. And actually, it's a tragic situation if you think about it. If you were here for our series on Jacob, you would have seen that one of the issues in Jacob's life was favouritism from a father and a mother, where his mother favoured him and his father favoured his twin brother Esau, and that was the root of so much of their conflict. And what tends to happen is we either kind of swing the pendulum, completely the opposite side from the sins of our parents, and maybe into opposite sins, hopefully not, or we repeat the sins of our parents. And tragically, Jacob doesn't learn from his life in Esau, and he repeats the sin of his parents. We have the situation where Jacob is above them, and all of a sudden, that's inverted. The power dynamic has completely shifted from Jacob in the position of power and prestige to 10 to one. There's 10 of them and one of him. Oh, and on top of it, nobody else is around. There's nobody else to see what is gonna happen. Nobody can ever dispute their story if they can just stick to their story themselves. What were to happen if suddenly you were in a position where you had all of the power and there was no one else around and nobody would ever be able to dispute your story, what would happen if that person was to be handed over to you like that? That person that you feel resentful towards, that person that you are jealous of, that person who you think has got ahead at your expense. Maybe there's even right reasons for you to feel the way that you do. Certainly at least some of how Joseph's brothers felt was actually justified, right? It wasn't right for their dad to, to do this. Certainly at least some of their feelings were justified. Maybe some of your feelings are justified towards somebody. What would it look like if you were suddenly in a 10 to one power position over them with nobody else able to witness what is happening and ever able to be dispute what it is that you did? The text doesn't just focus on the brothers in general, but it highlights two brothers in particular. First of all, it highlights Reuben, who's actually the firstborn, uh, and therefore himself has some power and position and prestige among the brothers, although exactly how much, if this was kind of a mob mentality situation, would it should, looks like it might have been, he had we're not entirely sure, but he, he, he tries to take some action. Let us not take his life Shed no blood, throw him into this pitcher in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So, Reuben is the only one who doesn't actually want to kill Joseph, who doesn't actually want to see Joseph down in the pit. He actually wants to bring good out of the situation. But unfortunately, the results are absolutely tragic. We're not told that he leaves, why he leaves, where he goes to, but it's clear that he must have left because while this whole transaction takes place where they sell him to the Midianite traders, he's obviously not there because he comes back and he finds that this is the end result. And what we're seeing here is that trying to placate betrayal or injustice, trying to just kind of subtly subvert it, I pretend to go along with it, but I'll undo it later, what we've seen is that that never works. If that's how you think you're going to undo injustice and betrayal, you're going to end up in this tragic situation of Reuben, who tears his outer robe as a symbol, as a symbol of his just lostness in this moment. I was chatting to someone about this text this week, and they said to me, But Gareth, what could Reuben have done realistically? You know, even if he joins in on Joseph's side, it's still nine verses two. You know, what could he have done realistically? And, And I don't know. I don't know what he could have done realistically. That's what I do know. I do know that when Jesus saw injustice and betrayal, he never hesitated to confront it radically. He never hesitated. And towards the end of his life, he goes into the temple. And we're told in Mark's gospel that he actually goes, he looks, he leaves, he ponders what he's seen. He comes back the next day because what he's seen is a system of injustice whereby they're inflating the cost of sacrifices and there's money changing that has to happen and the high priest is profiting because of how the money changing is happening, which ultimately leads to the poor not being able to come into the temple to worship God and he flips over tables and he drives them out of the temple, saying my house shall be called a house of prayer to all nations. Implicitly, you're preventing people from coming in and we're told in Mark's gospel that it was from that moment that they plotted to kill Jesus. So yes, there are definitely consequences of standing up to injustice, absolutely. But what we see from Jesus is that is how the kingdom operates. And what we see from Reuben is if you try to do things in a different way and simply placate injustice and attempt to like, pretend that you're going along with it and then maybe try to subvert it, it just doesn't work. Ultimately, that's one of the ways that injustice and betrayal ends up becoming systemic, which means it's ingrained into a corporate culture, a society's culture, or even a country's culture. And you don't have to look very far in South Africa's history to see how that takes place, although this sermon is not primarily about that kind of justice and righteousness. So we get this lesson from Reuben, we get this insight from Reuben into how not to stand up against betrayal and injustice, the other character that's highlighted is Judah. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. And we read that and we might on the one hand go, okay, so, so Judah actually wasn't that bad. Maybe, maybe there were two brothers that didn't want to kill uh, uh, Joseph, and, 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 and only eight of them were really, really bad, because he says, let's not kill him, he is our own flesh and blood. But actually, Judah gives two very different reasons for the next course of action. On the one hand, he says, what profit is it? And on the other hand, he says, let's not kill him because he's our own flesh and blood. Those are very, very different reasons and very different motivations, And if we ask ourselves, well, which of those was his true motivation? Well, then we just need to look at which one lines up with the action that was actually taken. And what lines up with the action that was actually taken is the fact that they got 20 pieces of silver. And what we learn from Judah is that it is so easy to have different motivations And to deceive ourselves as to our motivations, to justify a course of action. If you are coming out ahead at the expense of somebody else, Judah teaches us that you're probably justifying that by having a multitude of reasons. There's your real reason, which is going to line up with what actually happens. And then there's the reason that you give to everybody else that's listening to try to make yourself look like the good guy, even in the situation. Anytime you are coming out ahead in a situation is a good time to stop and check your motivation. How am I justifying this? Anytime you are coming out ahead at the expense of someone else, that's not just time to stop and check your motivation. That is a warning that you've already done what Judas done. Because in the gospel, in the kingdom of God, we don't come out ahead at the expense of someone else. If if that is already happening, you have already done what Judah has done. You're not just at risk of doing what Judah has done. The only way you come out ahead, and when I say the only way, it makes it sound like an exception, and it's actually not. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. The way that you come out ahead in the kingdom of God is you serve others to the point that you are given the opportunity to serve even more. That's how greatness is achieved in the kingdom of God. The second you are coming out ahead at the expense of somebody else, you've already departed from that, you've already justified it to yourself. And anytime you're coming out ahead in any way, you have to stop and check yourself. So, Joseph is in a pit. I was actually driving in the car with Brendan on Wednesday. We were chatting about this passage I was reading it, he was driving, don't worry, I was reading it, and, um, and as I was reading it and we were chatting about it, one verse jumped out at me in particular, one piece of a verse really jumped out at me, and I think to feel the full impact of it, we need to place ourselves into the situation a little bit. See, the Old Testament doesn't read like a modern novel. In you know, a modern novel describing the situation, we'd see exactly how they got him into the pits and, and whether there was punching and fighting and screaming and all of those things. The Old Testament is quite matter of fact. This happened, this happened, this happened. That's not a criticism. That's how things were written back then. But, but let's just novelize this for a second in our minds. Let's just kind of use a little bit of imagination as to what would have actually happened here. Because let's be real, Joseph didn't walk up and they said, hey, take off your coat. We want to throw you in the pits. And he kind of, you know, folded it up neatly and and then sort of climbed down himself. No, this is a 17-year-old young man who is strong and fit from working in the fields every single day of his life. They are grabbing him. They are tearing this coat off of him. There's probably some punches to the gut to subdue him because he's probably kicking and Punching and just grabbing hold of anything he can grab hold on. If you've ever been on a playground and you've seen somebody dragged off, someone who's genuinely putting up a fight, you know how much of a fight that actually is. He's probably screaming at them the whole time Hey, what are you doing? This is not right. I'm going to get back at you. You can't do this. And when they throw him in the pit, he might be winded for a moment. But I don't imagine that he's just quietly sitting down there contemplating his future. I imagine that he's crying out to them. And in the midst of all of that, then they sat down to eat. That's the verse that jumped out at me. Then they sat down to eat. The most mundane daily action virtually that it is possible to take in this most horrendous of circumstances Eventually, I'm sure Joseph grew hoarse and stopped screaming from the pit. But I'm sure there must have been at least the occasional shout for mercy, for justice, for the wrongness of this, for the how can you do this to me while they ate their psalmies. There is a callousness to this that would be almost unfathomable except we have this thing called the daily news. There's a callousness to this. There's a betrayal, not just of their brother, which of course there is, but, but even of the humanity of Joseph. Just of, of the decency and the dignity of his humanity. There's a betrayal of it. Their hearts have grown so hard towards him that the cries of another human being in absolute distress no longer do anything to their hearts. Anyone who hates his brother or his sister has already committed murder in his heart. This passage is just that outworked. And we can read this and hopefully already you're feeling how we are not completely disconnected to this because this is not ultimately about their actions, it's ultimately about their heart. But we could still read this. I think, okay, we've learned some things about betrayal and uh, I'm I'm glad I don't do these kind of things and and hopefully somebody was listening who might be inclined to that. I would never shove someone in a pit. I would never sell someone into slavery. I would never plan someone's murder, I hope. But I hope you're starting to see that this is not about their actions. Hatred, more hatred, more hatred, jealousy leading to a coldness of heart that denies the humanity of their own brother, crying out in distress. It starts off with Joseph being in a position of authority over them. That's where the jealousy in particular and the hatred in particular, it's not the only source of those emotions, but certainly in this story, it's the source of those emotions. So let's start to personalize this a little bit. In your family... Who's that person you resent because in some way they have something over you? Maybe it's similar to this story of favoritism from a parent, which is not right, but is that jealousy and that hatred growing and growing? In your social circle, that person that has the prestige, maybe they even put you down and there's a a kind of A justification for how you feel, but it's become jealousy and hatred and it's growing and growing because of how they mistreat you. Maybe in your company it's somewhat justified because they stole an idea from you or got a promotion that you deserved or got a raise at your expense because of how they did everything on a curve and and there was only so much salary and bonus to go around. And and there's a justification, just like these brothers had a right to be offended at the situation. There's There's a justification in our hearts. But anyone who has anger in his heart against a brother or sister has already committed murder. Maybe it's a slightly different situation. Maybe it's more like when Joseph is in the pit. There's someone that is struggling in your circle. And because you resent them for some reason, dislike them, maybe it's a personality clash, maybe they said something that offends you. If it's in a corporate environment, maybe you're withholding resources from them. Nobody even knows this is the case. Maybe you have a solution for their situation, you're just withholding it from them. Maybe you're refusing to recognize their accomplishments and their achievements, and you're putting them down in meetings. And maybe again, there's, maybe there's some reasons for how you feel about them. But this is what happens when it grows. Maybe in your social circle, there's someone that's a little bit awkward and they're kind of the butt of the joke. And you're like, oh, I know that's not really right, but, but you know, if, if I kind of go along, then maybe afterwards I can kind of like build them up a little bit and you're doing a Reuben. It's not going to work. It's not going to change anything. You see, maybe we don't have the opportunity. Maybe we don't have the power flow. 10 to 1, no one around, no one to see what we're doing. But actually we all find ourselves in situations like this. Now the text doesn't stop with Joseph being sold to the Midianite traders. The text continues. Because there's other affected parties. They take the rope, they dip it in blood, And they take it to Joseph's father, Jacob. And I don't know what they were expecting. They probably didn't even think it through. But what they probably weren't expecting was him to be absolutely inconsolable. If they'd actually applied their minds to the humanity of the situation, they probably would have realized that, but that wasn't the state of mind they were in. He's absolutely inconsolable. And while the text focuses on him, obviously Joseph's mother would have been just as much. Obviously, friends would have been distraught. Jacob says, I'm going to mourn for the rest of my days. And you can actually see, as we go through the rest of the story, you're going to see that that Jacob's personality has actually been changed because of this. And the way that he treats different situations, particularly with regard to Joseph's younger brother by the same mother, Benjamin... You can see by what happens there that this has absolutely shaped him. It's left an indelible mark on him. And kind of the final cherry on the top of betrayal is that it's never just against one person. We live in community. So often we forget this. We can tend to focus on kind of hyper individuals, but we live in community and there's never a betrayal against one person. It's always a betrayal against their larger circle, at the very least against their very immediate family, but possibly even ripples beyond that. And so we start off thinking about it as a justified reason to be resentful against somebody. And we might not end up here, but what Jesus says is our hearts are there. Our hearts are there. If we take a step back from the text for a second and we kind of remove ourselves a little bit and I, I kind of have I've bound us to the brothers a little bit, I think. If we, if we unbind ourselves just a little bit and we get a bit dispassionate for a moment and, and kind of objective, we might ask ourselves this question. Well, what should happen to these brothers? What would be justice for these brothers? And I think it's fair to say that what would be justice would be for them to be treated in the same way. There would be a sense of rightness if they were to be betrayed. There would certainly be a sense of rightness if they were to be sold into slavery. There would certainly be a sense of rightness about that. But if we fast forward all the way to the end of the story and we'll focus on this in more detail when we get this, I'm just gonna give you the headlines If we fast forward, we see that's not actually what happens. Incredibly, that is not what happens. Incredibly, that's not what happens even when the power is inverted yet again and suddenly Joseph has the power of life and death over them And then Jacob passes away and the brothers get together and they go, oh my goodness, it's been okay up until now. But now we're living in this land that Joseph is in charge of and he was probably just waiting for our father to pass away so that he can take his revenge on us. And what we see is exactly the opposite. What we see is that unbelievably somehow Joseph has grace and mercy on them. Somehow that's what happens. you might be thinking about this text and thinking about a particular individual that you're resentful towards or jealous towards and it would be very natural for you to say, Gareth, I can't help how I feel. That was a very real situation. That really happened and I actually can't help how I feel. When Joseph forgives his brothers. He is modeling what Jesus is gonna come and do. And just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. Think about how much he would have to internalize, how much pain he would literally have to process and if you've ever had to forgive someone you know what this means how much pain he would have had to process and internalize and deal with in order to be able to say to them I forgive you and then we consider how much more Jesus has to process and internalize and how much more pain he has to take into himself, not just to forgive from his point of view the sins of the world, which would already be more than we could fathom, but even more than that, to take into himself the consequences They should be sold into slavery as well. Not just of these 10 brothers, but for each and every one of us for the times that we have committed murder in our hearts. The price that he has to pay, the burden that he has to bear. And here's the incredible truth. You can't change how you feel About an injustice that's been done to you, about a hurt, you can't change it. But what can change it is seeing the beauty of what Jesus has done on the cross. It'll not just change it, it will replace it, it will transform it, it'll become a sense eventually not just of pain but of growth and of beauty in the midst of difficulty because the gospel has so transformed it that it gives you a bigger picture of who God is. Now, you absolutely can't help how you feel. But the gospel absolutely can transform everything about that situation, everything about you, and bring righteousness and justice into that situation. It changes it to the point where we can do the opposite of what Reuben did and actually stand up to injustice. It changes us so we can do the opposite of what Judah does, who lies about his motivations. It actually frees us to be able to see our true motivations, knowing that those motivations have been cleansed at the cross so that we can change our course of action the power of the gospel, the incredible reality of what Jesus has done, that I am just like these brothers and somehow, miraculously, just like them, I am forgiven. And so now I can go and live differently and I can go and pray and work out that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven.